0: Ferris, Lord Jesus, beautiful Savior, thank you for that. Good morning, friends, and welcome to our 8.30 service on this the second Sunday of the season of Lent. Welcome to those of you in the room, many more joining us online. It's good to worship God together in this way. Some of you are visiting with us. We're really honored that you've come. Hope you'll come back, leave some contact information so we can uh, perhaps befriend one another. In the days ahead. Uh, my name is James Howell, and I'm up front this morning with my friend and colleague, Reverend Jessica Dayson.
1: Good morning, friends. It is good to be together. I hope you'll take a moment to look on the inside flap of your bulletin. As we are in the midst of the season of Lent, I hope you'll take an opportunity to add something to your routine, whether it be a small group or a service opportunity, there are ways for you to get involved here. Friends, it is good to be together. We are glad that you are here. So let us worship God together. God, let us join our voices together as we profess our faith through the Apostles Creed found in your bulletin. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. Friends, as we continue on in worship, I invite you to join me in the prayer of confession as found in your bulletin. Our minds and hearts are consumed by busyness and brokenness. Pride and rancor shout loudly in our lives. We want to see as you see, to see ourselves as vessels of your love, to see and be kind to others. We want to hear as you hear, listening to the least of these, those wounded, debated, blamed, and left out. Free us from all bondage, free enough to be reconciled to you and with others. Consume our hearts and minds by your grace. How great is our God. God is rich in mercy and in forgiveness. So friends, hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God, amen.
2: Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading is Mark chapter 8, beginning in the 31st verse. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he said these plainly and Peter took him and began to rebuke him but turning and seeing his disciples he rebuked Peter and said get behind me Satan For you are not on the side of God, but of men. And he called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the Word of God. For the people of God.
0: This uh, pivotal moment in Jesus' story uh, takes place in the far north of Israel, uh, Caesarea Philippi. I take groups to visit there, we see this huge, dark cave. It was the cave of Pan. It was thought in ancient times to be the entrance to the underworld. Jesus calls it the gates of hell. There also there was a war on of temples dedicated to the Caesar. I mean, it is in this place, dedicated to the gods of nature, the fears of the afterlife, the gods of the empire. It's in this place that Jesus tries to explain what it means that he's the one, that He's the one. And what the text tells us is as confusing to us as it was to those first disciples, he began to teach them that he must suffer, that he must be rejected, that he must be killed. And we might prefer it if when Jesus explained this, he says, so bye, go home, play it safe, see ya. I'm gonna go down to Jerusalem and die. But instead, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me would have preferred that Jesus might have said, stay safe, take up your pillow, and relax. I've got this. But instead, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. What is that about? What does it mean to take up your cross? In the Roman world, anyone who heard that would have said, oh, that's the uh, what we call the green mile, death row. Join Jesus on death row. What's it like on death row? I, I, I know you're encouraged so far by the sermon that James has got a cheerful, funny one today. It's the gospel reading for the day. What does it mean to be on death row? Um, A friend of mine wrote a commentary on Mark and suggested that a helpful analogy would be uh, what Solzhenitsyn wrote about the Russian gulag. He writes this, "'From the moment you enter the gulag, "'you put your cozy past behind you. "'At the very threshold, you must say to yourself, "'My life is over. "'I shall never again return to my old life. "'I no longer have any property. Only my spirit remains precious to me. I mean, Jesus has this logic that is so illogical. It's that uh, you lose your life to save it. You deny yourself to find yourself. The Christian life, I wish, I love you. I wish I could tell you it was otherwise. The Christian life is not a cozy tomorrow. It's not a warm, fuzzy future. Your old life is over. Your property is no longer yours. It's God's it's a different kind of freedom I remember this light bulb moment in seminary a guy was lecturing and he said uh, why did Jesus die and everybody said for our sins which is a great answer then he turned the question though instead of saying why did Jesus die he asked why did they kill him but the answer can't be for our sins why did they kill Jesus And it seems pretty clear that they killed Jesus because he just crossed too many boundaries, right? I mean, they had boundaries that were well set up between who were the pious, who were the inside people, who were the ones that understood God's law and were achieving, and then who were the outsiders, who were the despised. And Jesus seemed to have this preference to cross boundaries, Joined those who were despised, who were ostracized, and then he criticized the pious. And if Jesus did this, then maybe that's part of what it means for us to take up our cross and follow him. We, too, we think God wants us to to be nice, but God's not impressed by our niceness. God wants us to cross the same boundaries that Jesus crossed. I thought this week about what Jesus uh, did not do, and I uh, thought about it because I read a, a great new novel uh, that's pretty popular called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It's a great book. It's sort of about video gamers, but you don't have anything about video games to love the novel. I would fit in that category. One of the key passages is when a guy named Marx asked this, what is a game? It's tomorrow and tomorrow. And tomorrow. The game is only over. If you stop playing, there's always one more light. Even the most brutal death isn't final. You could have taken poison, fallen into a vat of acid, been shot a hundred times. Still, if you click restart, you could begin the game all over again. Next time, you might get it right. You might even win. <laughs> like I love that. And I wonder sometimes if this is at the heart of why we have so many mass shootings is that people grow up with a game where you can shoot up and you can get shot, but then you hit restart. Then in real life, you don't get the restart. You and I don't get a restart, do we? Jesus didn't take a restart. His death was brutal. It was final. He did that for us. He did that out of love for us to redeem the world, and the question I've always had is, how does that work? Jesus died a terrible death on the other side of the globe 2,000 years ago. How does that work? Uh, When Taylor and Jessica and I were in seminary, we learned theories of the atonement. They're a theory, they're nodding. That's, glad, thank you for, it's like an amen from the congregation there theories of the atonement. Different theologians have speculated on what is really the meaning of Jesus' death. There was Anselm back in the 12th century, and his image was, I think, one that I overheard in church when I used to go with my wonderful grandparents, and that's that you have sinned, and God is very angry with you about your sin. And the only thing that can be done about God's anger, God is so mad, is the sacrifice of his perfect, beautiful, sinless son. Then God's not angry at you any longer. This is hugely problematical. It portrays a God who's not a God of love, but a God of wrath. We even misunderstand what wrath is. I remember when I was in seminary, I did an internship at a church one summer. The pastor gave me one crack at preaching, and uh, I stood up. I thought I'd prepared just such a clever sermon. And the first sentence was, the wrath of God is something we really don't want to talk about and the sermon went downhill from there. And the senior pastor did inform me he would not give me another crack at his pulpit after that. What is the wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? I was trying to think of a sentence. I think the wrath of God is when we go crashing into God's mercy at the wrong angle and we resist it. It's all, God is always merciful. God is always merciful, but we resisted. We We, we, we neglect it. We, we think we can do it on our own, and then it begins to feel like anger because we're just out of sync with God. But God is always mercy. God is always mercy. There's a friend of mine named Chris Green, theologian, put it. I love it uh, jesus says i must go and suffer and die and peter so earnest peter says oh no lord that this can't be you can't go and suffer and die and what does he say he says get behind me it's absolutely perfect what green says about that is jesus seems to be turning away from peter and sometimes you feel like god has turned away from you but but what chris green says is that when jesus turns away from peter and says get behind me that's actually where peter is supposed to be in the first place we're supposed to be behind jesus following him by jesus turning away is that the wrath of god or is it jesus actually showing us where we are to be he's not putting as chris green put it he's not putting peter in his place he is helping peter find his place our place is to be behind jesus wherever it is that he takes us uh, abelard came along and respond to anselm and said no it's not that god's angry, It's the god god is is so much love god is full of so much love and when jesus dies on the cross what we see there is the outpouring the abundance of god's love that's a better answer robert jensen was a great theologian died a couple of years ago He said there's no theory of the atonement there's just the bible story of what jesus did and the question is how do we find ourselves in the story in the story of jesus coming to suffer like where do we see ourselves in that first of all jesus is willing to go into that place he has immense courage and the question we don't ask often enough in church is do we have a little courage it takes courage to live the christian life it's not hiding out in comfort on our faith pillow it takes some courage to be god's person in the world jesus when he goes to jerusalem everybody is being so very ugly to him from the soldiers to pontius pilate to peter denying him and in the face of ugliness jesus is quiet he never retaliates that's a big deal we live in a world where everybody feels entitled to retaliate Even if it's in the silence of your own mind, looking out the window, you retaliate at your neighbor who doesn't hear you retaliating, but in your heart, you're so annoyed with that neighbor. Jesus was once a great miracle worker, but then at the end of his life, he's handed over. He's handed over to others. He stops dazzling the crowds with his miracles and his words, and instead he lets himself be acted upon this great theologian named W.H. Vanstone who said that uh, that actually should make us think about the plot of our lives. We think in our lives that the the ideal, the glory of our life is when we're productive and in charge of things. And the thing we hate most of all is getting older where we become dependent on others and we aren't as independent and we aren't as productive. That's just a nightmare for the modern American. But what Vanstone said that if the gospels are any clue, that's really the glory. I remember visiting a woman in a nursing home years ago, and she's reduced, she had been a, had a fabulous active life. But she was reduced to bed, totally immobile. I thought she'd be depressed about this, and she said, isn't this the greatest life? I, I had no comment to that. She said, I always dreamed of being a queen, and everyone would wait on me, and now, They're all waiting on me. I am the queen. (laughs) So regal. In the life of the gospel, it may actually be when we're not so active and independent. That is our glory. I told you before about Mr. Rogers uh, going to visit a a paraplegic child. Um, Hadn't spoken. was quiet. His mother was so concerned about him. Some foundation paid for Mr. Rogers to come and visit this boy. And... So Mr. Rogers visited with him, and the boy perked up, smiled, and when Mr. Rogers got ready to go, he said to the boy, holding his hand, would you pray for me? There was a reporter watching this, and when they walked the he said, that was very clever of you to ask that boy to pray for you. Wow, what a cool idea. And Mr. Rogers, of course, naive as ever, didn't know what he was talking about, he said, I really wanted him to pray for me. I figure somebody who's gone through that much must be very close to God. Somebody who's been through that much must be very close to God. Jesus dies to save us, and the way to think about that, I think, is that Jesus enters into the darkest of all dark places. Uh, There's an Auschwitz photo exhibit in town now that I would encourage you to go and see. It's really haunting. It's beautiful, it's grievous, it's all of those things. Elie Wiesel tells about being in Auschwitz, and one night, uh, the Nazis uh, hung a little boy, and people were watching the boy. Wiesel heard a voice behind him say, "'Where is God now?' Where is God now? And Wiesel heard a voice in his own head saying, There he is hanging on the gallows. We could say God is dead, or we could say that Jesus came to die for us, to be one with us in our suffering and our dying. Hmm? And redeem it from the inside. Jesus is always with us. Jesus, as he is on the cross dying. I can't get over this. I didn't really think about it much until a couple of years ago, and it just keeps rattling around in my head. Jesus is on the cross, and he looks at the soldiers who aren't praying, who aren't asking for mercy. They're making fun of Jesus. They're gambling for his clothing. They have no clue who he is. They think he's just a common criminal who's been killed, and Jesus looks down and and forgives them. Like, that's all you need to know about the heart of God. It's not the pious, it's not the repentant, it's not the good, it's not the nice. Jesus is just full of that much forgiveness. It blows my mind. It blows my mind. Jesus looks at the law keepers, the Romans, the religious people, the law keepers, and he dies at their hand. It's the law keepers, it's the good people who killed Jesus. That means there's just an end to all our craving to control our own lives and to be righteous enough for God. Uh, we're saved, we're saved from what? What are you saved from? When I was a little boy, I had to do a lot of church going, I went with my grandparents, the preacher up there, he, I, he wasn't on fire, but he was hurling fire at us. I mean, he scared the daylights out of me. And like, you're a sinner and you're going to burn it. I mean, it would, I would just, I'd go home, like, traumatized. I still have PTSD thinking about it. Church wasn't air-conditioned. It was hot in there already, and he's preaching this thing. I was terrified as a child. God's not a terrorist. God couldn't bear to see any of his beloved creatures burn forever maybe we're saved from a vapid pointless superficial life maybe it's not what we're saved from but what we're saved for we're saved for a life of meaning and purpose holiness and being part of something bigger than ourselves (laughs) we're saved for that and then maybe there's one other thing Early in the week, I read Maggie O'Farrell's novel, I Am, I Am, I Am. I thought I'd read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, so then I would follow up by reading I Am, I Am, I Am. The subtitle was 17 Brushes with Death. She narrates 17 times in her life that she almost died. I saw the title, I thought, man, that's a lot. After you read the book, you think, I've had 47 Brushes with Death. Driving in Charlotte every day. Anyway. He's talking about brushes with death and how do you live with the fact that death is always fairly close to us. And part of what Jesus died for is that you, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear death. This works two ways. The first I don't like as much as the second. The first is this, and then I'll be done. Wallace Stevens, a great poet novelist, wrote, Death is the mother of beauty. Only the perishable can be beautiful, which is why we are unmoved by artificial flowers." Look, I love that. Rabbi Steve Leder responded to this by saying, "'The beauty of flowers is that they fade. The same for our lives. What meaning would a deathless life have? Would we not lack ambition? Would we not have purpose? The beauty is that our lives are not infinite. We can only accomplish so much, so we must make the most of our time here on Earth. I like that, but I think it's way more than that. I thought this week about people that I've loved and lost, and I got fixated on three in particular. I've told you before, very attached to my grandfather. We called him Papa Howell. He died way too young. I remember as a child going and trying, this is the first serious death in my life, and I remember trying to parse what everybody was saying and everyone was saying, he's in a better place. He's in heaven. He's with God. This was of no comfort to me as a boy. I, I guess I was glad he was with God. I wanted him here with me. And then recently, I, and a number of us, have suffered two other deaths. Uh, One was my father-in-law in in October. I knew he was 93, and somebody said, oh, you got 93 years with him, and that's, that's true, and I'm so grateful for that. At the same time, I wish he were here in July to have that 94th birthday. I miss him every day. I'd rather him be here. Same with Jimmy our uh, music director. At his service, everybody was saying, oh, he's with God, oh, he's so great, oh, we have such wonderful memories. And It just stuck in my gut. It's hard for me to think of the world without Jimmy in it, without my father-in-law in it, even after all these years, without my grandfather in it. And yet allowing for all of that Jesus came to die for us. And as you heard the, in the reading, to be raised from the dead. I meant to look up a quote this week, and I forgot to do it, so I was trying to jot it down from what I could recall of it this morning. Marilyn Robinson wrote a great novel that a lot, a lot of people don't know about called Housekeeping, and on the last page of Housekeeping, she uh, says this thing, she says, uh, "Every memory, every beautiful thought that we have ever had, they turn over and over in our minds in the hope that memory will fulfill itself, that every beautiful thought will fulfill itself, and it will begin to take on flesh, and that the wanderers whose absence we feel so strongly that that wanderers will walk through the door and come and stroke our hair and say we are sorry we kept you waiting so long. Jesus died for us so that such a day will be. So much love. God's not angry. God is that loving that even death won't finally take us down and for this we give thanks to god amen
3: Let us continue to pray. Heavenly God, here I am. Here you are. Here we can be together. No matter our exhaustion, our grief, our stress, our shame, our brokenness, you have not left our side. You remain with us as we wander through our lives. You love us wholly. Guide our thoughts, imaginations, and actions to encounter you in our lives and in our worship. Help us to experience you today and all days. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, this pain in this world we feel in our bodies the exhaustion of sleepless nights the tight chest and the prayers that anxiety that we pray that it untethers its grip on our hearts the fog of depression casting a veil over the things in our life that brings us joy hiding the things that inspire us and make us believe that the world is much dimmer than we remember it to be. Lord, may your peace be known. May we feel your healing presence in our souls and in our bodies. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, this week we are reminded that all children are beloved children of God. And we come to you with hope that we can live in a world That accepts all children as divinely known and loved by God. We lament that we still live in a violent place with so much hatred. Hear our prayers of sorrow, our prayers of repentance. Let your Spirit guide us toward a safer, more loving world for all of God's people, a place where we will know less grief. But Lord, We know there is grief in this world, so we lift our grief and the grief of others before you. Lord, we especially lift up the families of Dottie Tobias, Cecilia Boyer, and the Reverend Sidnor Thompson III. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, help us hold on to hope. Help us to be healers. Help us to be proclaimers. Embolden us, let the seeds of our kindness make changes in this world. Empower us to speak courageously when we have opportunities to make change in our lives. Lord, help us to be the church. Help us to say yes to you whenever your spirit stirs in us. Help us to remember that we are doing this work together. And now let us pray the prayer your Son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As our ushers come forward for our offering, I want to say thank you for your continued generosity, that we get to be a church that is growing, a church that worships God, a church that tries to do good in the world. Thank you for the ways in which you make that possible. Lord, we offer these gifts to you. May they become a source for hope for the world that extends beyond us. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: of God, what will you do with this gift of life? May you go forth knowing that God loves you. Let us go forth and love God and love our neighbors. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go in peace. Thank you.